This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby returns tomorrow. Thank you for joining me on this beautiful, sunny day, whether you're in your car, your backyard, your kitchen, your desk. These are the days when you can pretty much be anywhere as long as you're physical distancing. We have a number of hot topics to discuss with our Zoomer squad, so let's get to them. Joining us as they do every Monday, Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine. Hi, guys. Hi, how are you? Hi, Jane. Hi. Nice to have you all. Marissa, since I mentioned just before 10 this morning on the air that you would have some details on when 65 plus Canadians can expect to receive their COVID 19 benefit money, either 300 or 500, we've been receiving emails, calls, and tweets from listeners who want to know why their checks have not yet arrived. Are you able to provide us with some info? Yes and no. So we, too, have been inundated, really, with calls and emails from people wondering when it's coming. So we've actually put in a request to President Duclos' office. Uh, The person we spoke to at the time was unable to confirm that information, but said they would get back to us in writing, hopefully today. It could even come in during this call, uh, during the show. So I'll let you know as soon as I do get it. Okay, well, that's good. Also, I just want to put the... Uh, the um, invitation out to our listeners, the Zoomer Radio listeners, have you received your COVID-19 check if you are 65 plus, 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. And if anybody's going to be in the know on this, it will be Marissa at CARP. Uh, so we'll go on to the hydrophile now. Libby found out some more details for us yesterday. If If you're on time-of-use hydro rates, you will be paying more as of today, but the price will still be lower than the regular rates. When the pandemic hit, the PC government gave time-of-use customers a break, charging the lowest rate of 10.1 cents a kilowatt hour, 24 hours a day. That subsidy expired yesterday and cost us provincial taxpayers $165 million. As of today, those customers, customers will now be charged a flat rate of 12.8 cents a kilowatt hour, which is intended to be revenue neutral. Normally, time of use rates go up to 21 cents a kilowatt hour during daylight hours. David, I'll bring you on with this now. How helpful has this break in hydro pricing been during the the beginning of the pandemic? Well, first a qualifier, I don't have a PhD, in, which you do need to figure out hydro <laughs> rates uh, at any time of year. Uh, all the different metrics and formulas and smart meters and uh, Uh, It's a little bit like cell phone rates. I think that it's maybe deliberately mysterious. But generically, anything that lowers the price, anything that provides financial relief, uh, I define as a good thing. And as long as the government can uh, carry that out, uh, uh, you know, every day longer that we're getting relief from higher prices, uh, 
it's a good thing. Uh, beyond that, I don't really think that I'm, you know, I, I, the analysis of this, uh, could they have extended it further? Was the subsidy enough? Was the rate enough? Uh, I think that we pay uh, insane uh, hydro rates uh, at the best of times. I think that's a whole other program if you want to start you know, unraveling those threads. But in general, I would apply anything that saves people money. Peter, did you personally notice a difference on your bill or have any comments about this? Well, you know, um, we, we've we been trying to cut down our energy use anyway, so I, I'd like to think it was due to us, but I, I think it was due to the lower rate. We saved about $15 on our last bill. So, um, you know, Maybe some of that we do to us, but I, I, I think a lot of it was, was thanks to the uh, the cut in rate. But this one, um, this new one, uh, it, it actually should benefit people coming up to the summer where they're running their air conditioning during the day. Yes. Um, they won't be paying high peak rates. They'll be paying um, what looks 12.8 cents per kilowatt instead of 20, 20.8 cents. So, so it, you know, for the summer months, it could benefit people who run air conditioners all day. That's a really good point, because all of the other appliances we run, we run year-round. So yeah, there, you there, have to, right? Right. Yeah. There would be a modest yeah. break in pricing for your dishwasher and for your uh, yeah. washer and dryer. But you're, but this this will be the real indicator, because that is noticeable, your, your summer air conditioning yeah, hydro. Is. Yeah, yeah. And you can't really choose to run that at night. You know, you, you have to run it during the heat of the day. Yeah. So, Marissa? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because, you know, I don't know that I've necessarily noticed a significant savings, but I do know that the government's moved in that direction to cut costs. Um, but I think it's sort of been... I, I think it sort of balances itself out because I'm, now I'm at home all day, whereas previously we, we weren't at home. So I would typically do the dishes and I would typically do the laundry in the evening anyway, and I would benefit from those reduced rates because it's a non-peak hour. Um, but now, because we're home all day, I'm using my, my energy all day long, and so um, I think I'm just spending more. Um, but I think what's important about what the, what the Premier announced is that this fixed price, will be in place until October 31st. So, you know, we talk about this pandemic lasting beyond June 1st. I know the province is starting to open up and and they've provided relief that is, you know, eventually will come, will expire and will come to an end. But it's important that this fixed price will be in place until October 31st. And you're right, uh, Peter, you're absolutely right. It, it, It will provide the needed relief, particularly for people that are home all day, running their air conditioning systems in, in the heat. And, uh, and it wasn't so long ago, Marissa, CARP had a campaign called Heat or Eat, yep. where p- p- fixed income seniors are literally choosing, sometimes in the middle of winter, whether to buy groceries or to have heat. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and we do know that out-of-pocket expenses have increased as a result of COVID, whether or not, you know, maybe that's premiums on, on groceries, maybe that's the delivery charge associated with getting food delivered to your home, maybe that's dispensing fees. So this is certainly welcomed. Um, and you're absolutely right for people on fixed incomes. I mean, the hydro rates are just so high in Ontario. And, you know, this is one of the things that Premier Ford campaigned on. It's one of the reasons he got elected, uh, because he was so adamant about cutting costs of hydro. 
Um, so this is certainly aligned with with his messaging then. And David, as on, on what yeah. Peter said about the summer too, we also know that, um, that we don't know how hot a summer it's going to be, but we also know that um, heat 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 related um, problems, health problems, even fatalities, uh, where there isn't where, where uh, particularly with shut in insulated seniors who may not have air conditioning. But if they do have it and they are trying to save on it and not run it all the time because they're worried about the cost, so that would be a health contributor, too, if you can bring those costs down because mm-hmm. they're particularly prone uh, to those kinds of problems. Uh, what about advocating to have the rates stay beyond the end of October, Marissa? What should people do um, to extend that message to the government? So I guess I would I sort of fall in the camp of David. I don't know exactly how these prices are calculated and what the cost is associated with it, so on and so forth. But there's no question in Ontario, the costs of hydro are so high, it's unsustainable for a lot of people to afford. Um, and so it's something that, you know, we weighed, as I said, the premier campaigned on cutting hydro rates. This was one of his election promises. And until now, until he's made such a significant announcement about reducing the the billing on on hydro rates because of COVID, I haven't no, I didn't notice a difference before. I don't know that anything was done before COVID-19. Um, and so I think it's something that needs to be addressed on an ongoing basis. There's no question. Let's talk about long-term care now. And if you're just joining us here at Zoomer Radio, Jane for Libby and our Zoomer squad is here every Monday. Peter Mugridge, David Kravitz, and Marissa Lennox. The military report uh, had not come out yet when we last convened a week ago at this time. Marissa, I know you were on with Libby after it came out the following day. So now that it's been almost a week, what are your thoughts on how best to move forward? Well, uh, you know, look, I think based on the fallout from COVID-19, there are a number of key learnings, and those learnings need to be applied to a set of national standards that guarantee this never happens again. So I think going forward, that has to be one of them. The other thing I would say is there's no question that what has come from this is a general sentiment that people don't want to end up in long-term care to begin with. Um, especially during a pandemic, it'll prevent you from getting it if you're isolated in your own home. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, beyond an overall investment in long-term care, which is absolutely critical for people in these facilities uh, to make it better for them who do need it. There also needs to be an investment in home care services so that people can age at home, which is ultimately where they want to be. Peter, what was your reaction to the report since we haven't uh, had it on the air yet? Well, you know, um, what the report did was um, it was very useful. It, It put... In, in a national spotlight, all the complaints that people who have loved ones in long-term care have been expressing for years. Like, um, I mean, not everyone has, has every single complaint on the list, but everyone who's had experience in, with these homes has seen, you know, um, you know, uh, poorly cleaned hallways. They've seen patients lying in bed unchanged. They've seen, um, you know, patients being force-fed. They, they, they've seen residents crying for help and not receiving it. They've seen all that. And what this report did, it, it put every single one of those complaints in the national lim- limelight that the uh, Premier can no longer hide from and the Prime Minister can't hide from. 
they have to address these things now. David? I think it, it pointed out a couple of things. First of all, if I'm the premier, um, I've got to be feeling emotionally. I don't know if we can do this operationally. You know, how many heads can roll? Where were the inspectors? Who's supposed to be going into these? Why is the Army finding this out? The Army's not trained. It's got to be so blatant for them to be seeing this. Why are they seeing this? Where were the inspectors? We've got to see an awful lot of people walk the plank on this uh, and lose their jobs over this, quite frankly. Second thing that worries me a lot, and it's, it may be a little too soon, but fixing these outrages is going to be relatively easy precisely because they're so outrageous. And the government will go after this, you know, we can't have food rotting, we can't have equipment logging. So they'll put in a number of measures to fix that. But here's, a, here's something we've got to be thinking about, and it speaks to what Marissa said. Fifteen years from today, there will be 80% more people in Canada over the age of 75 than there are today, almost double. So if you think we've got a problem now, if we can't cope with the situation we have now, what do you think it's going to look like then when that demand gets activated? We're going to have 5.5 million Canadians over the age of 75. Now, they won't all go into long-term care homes, but even at today's ratio... That's an almost doubling of capacity, where today's capacity is too weak and too undermanned and too badly run. So we have a double crisis. We have to fix this mess of a system right now, and we have to get ready for a doubling of demand. Nothing serious, doubling of the demand. And that speaks to home care and all the other solutions. So unless they come up with a holistic look at the entire problem and and a very robust set of solutions, including maybe even featuring home care, uh, I think we're going to face this again, frankly. And, and what not- what about the whole for-profit uh, situation with nursing homes? That's been a big topic of discussion this last week, that, that there should be no profit in nursing homes, Marissa. Well, you know, it, it, not just this last week. I mean, there have been years' worth of studies which have shown some of the challenges in for-profit homes as compared to not-for-profit or, or municipally-run homes. Um, what this military re- report exposed is that, you know, <laughs> that there is a, a clear disregard for the human condition occurring in these homes, and these things are endemic. And so there are some for-profit homes that have performed well throughout this pandemic, but then on average, more for-profit homes tend to perform poorer than not-for-profit homes. Um, and it's, I mean, you, you can understand why. Uh, they have, you know, uh, shareholders that they're accountable to. They're, they're trying to, to uh, you know, profit off the care of seniors and what's their biggest budget line item? Well, it's staffing. So it's one of the things that, that, that'll get cut. The other thing that gets cut, of course, is the food budget. I mean, we've heard of homes that are operating, you know, people are, are being fed on $4 a day. It's totally egregious. And so that's why I think at a minimum, we need to be talking about national standards to ensure that even the for-profit homes, if they do go on, that they can't circumvent them.
Maybe it's it's possible to have for profit uh, in retirement homes. If somebody is moving there to spend the last of their life in a retirement home and they're used to a certain standard of living and they have the funds to pay a fairly large monthly cost, maybe, you know, and they want to live in a comfortable hotel-like environment with a hotel-like dining room, maybe that works. But nursing homes where people have no other place to go, I mean, that just seems like, Peter, that that is not the solution to be making profit off somebody who is frail and vulnerable and susceptible to something like COVID-19, as we've seen so tragically. Yeah, Jane, um, that's an excellent point, because I I don't even think in the, you know, I don't don't even think the profit margins are huge on nursing homes. You know, I think Extended Care um, made 7 million off its nursing homes last year. So, it, it's not, and, and and they don't they don't only own nursing homes; they also manage them as well. So it's it's not a huge uh, profit center, you know. But but uh, certainly retirement living is a, is a profit center, and and we may see these companies shift from long term care into you know in, into residential care, the for profit sector, and then leave, leave the you know the the smaller revenue generating um, long term care center. To the nonprofit industry, we might see that, and I think we will actually. I just want to let our guests know, as well as you, if you're out there listening, that we are actually having problems with our phone lines for callers. So if you're trying to get through and you're not being answered, uh, our IT department right now is uh, frantically trying to get the phones up and running so that we can take callers for the hour as well, in case you're wondering why. Normally, by this time, we have a few callers lined up who want to get in on the conversation. So please be patient. And certainly when you have guests like Marissa, David, and Peter, the conversation is interesting and engaging anyway. So we're doing, what, what? Our, we're doing our best to fix the problem, everybody. <laughs> so maybe, maybe I can act like a caller and, and ask Marissa a question. Oh, oh perfect. Okay, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a first-time caller from, uh, from Toronto. Um, the, uh, well done. The um, long-term care homes that are being taken over by the province, um, several of them are being run um, by hospital uh, management teams, and I, and I was just wondering what your what you're feeling like. Do they have the expertise to run long-term care? Do they have the staff? Like, what is your your opinion on that? I think that hospitals definitely have the transferable skills needed. Mm-hmm. to care for for people in long-term care. Um, I've also seen a number of homes that have actually transferred their residents to the hospital right. because yeah, the that... home was just had reached the point where, uh, you know, it, it couldn't continue to provide care to these residents. And, you know, the outbreaks were such that it was completely, you know, unsustainable. And um, which is, you know, the irony there, of course, is that at the beginning of this pandemic, we transferred all of these ALC patients from hospitals into the long-term care facilities. And then, you know, there was no clear direction really from the province about whether or not if someone tests positive for COVID-19, should they be transferred back to hospital? A lot of homes were refusing to do that. Um, and so now, you know, it, it's sort of a free-for-all. There's been, there's really been no clear guidance um, but it is a good thing at the end of the day that patients are being transferred to hospital 
where the home is completely unable to provide even basic levels of care. Well, and you know, that's a, a story we had in the news here on Zoomer Radio this morning about the situation at Woodbridge Vista Care. Uh, they came out publicly and said that 18 COVID-19 positive patients were sent to hospitals outside of York Region the other night because their care, um, the needs that for their care exceed what the home could provide. Now, This is interesting, David, and I'll put this to you. This was viewed as a negative by the president of SEIU Healthcare, which represents tens of thousands of frontline workers across the country. Charlene Stewart is calling for this home to be overtaken by the province as a result of having to send out a dozen and a half patients to hospital. I'm wondering, is it not a positive that these residents were sent to hospital for better care? Can I come down on both sides? Yes, please do. <laughs> of course it's a positive. Yeah. Of course it's a positive because they're putting life and safety ahead of their own uh, organizational uh, uh, you know, needs, let's say, or priorities. We've got to save this person's life. We can't do it in our building. Get him or her into a building where they can do it. You want that to happen. But then after having done that and said, well done, you ship that person off into a a facility where they can be saved, now I take a look at your facility and say, well, um, what's going on there that you weren't able to handle it? And in that point, the uh, union lady may or may not, may or may not have a point. Let's take, let's take a non-COVID case. Let's suppose that someone in a long-term care home needs uh, surgery need surgery, life-saving surgery. Now, you, nobody would expect the home, the long-term care home, to provide that surgery. It would be absolutely routine and non-newsworthy if an ambulance pulled up to the long-term care home, the patient was moved into the ambulance, taken down to the hospital, and the surgery was performed. Probably happens all the time. So I don't see anything that sinister about a long-term care home <clears throat> sending a patient to where they can get better care for an atypical event like this. Right. I mean, if you were a family member and it was, it was your, if it was your 90 year old mother, you, you would be relieved that she was being sent to the hospital. Yeah. So it's a question of, but I want to just add, I want to piggyback onto something both Peter and Marissa said about the private uh, public. I think it comes back. I'm echoing Marissa's point a little bit here. What are the standards that need to be you've got to start with the standards and let the ownership question follow we have for-profit restaurants everywhere that can be shut down if they have cockroaches in their kitchen or if they serve tainted meat we have inspectors policing for nobody's saying that restaurants shouldn't make a profit but they have standards they have to meet they get inspected regularly badly or well whatever it is but they, they have a regime that does that and if they fail, they have to fix it or close their doors. And we had 185 in long-term care home inspectors. I think that was the number in Ontario. How could they miss what the Army found in under a week? So I come back to what are the standards and who's minding the store? Um, Marissa, you want to comment? So a couple things. Uh, did you just say 185 inspections in Ontario, David? Inspectors. Inspectors. But they've been doing all their inspections primarily on the phone during the pandemic. Right. And, yeah. and as no, no, we know, I thought that was the number of individuals who are inspectors. That as, could as be. And, and as we know, um, the, the province did cut back in that yes. way. Yes. And only nine inspections were performed last year. Uh, 
random rigorous inspections were performed last year. And, and, and right. to Jane, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, a number of the inspections were being done over the phone during COVID-19. And as I said on the radio last week, I mean, one of the things that we learned from this military report was cockroach infestation. So how are you supposed to pick up on that when it's over the telephone, right? So, um, but I wanted to just go back to the hospital our discussion around, uh, you know, this this hospital. So I think what's the most important thing is that the health and safety of residents is paramount. And if a home feels like their health and safety is not paramount in that facility, then moving to them to a hospital would be a good thing. But but we cannot um, ignore the fact that moving these residents who are frail, elderly, many with cognitive impairment who are now testing positive for COVID-19, that is hugely disruptive to an individual. And no one wants to go to a hospital and be in a hospital room. So this shouldn't happen to begin with, right? So we shouldn't even be at the place where we need to be emptying homes into hospital settings because at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it may be what's in the best interest of the resident right now, but it's, it's hugely disruptive to their life. Um, you know, they are now not being, you know, not in a familiar setting. They're now in a hospital setting. And so there are so many things that come along with that. Okay. One last uh, topic that I want to get to before we say goodbye to our Zoomer squad for another week. Uh, Premier Ford, and, and, you know, this is similar to hospitals taking over, but last week he announced that four of the five homes that were detailed in the military report, along with Camilla Care in Mississauga, which has also been hard hit by COVID-19, uh, would be taken over by the government. What does this mean, being taken over by the government? How will the residents be taken care of differently? Who would like to weigh in on that well it, you know if the hospital's running it and and marissa suggests they're they're um well placed to run it then then i imagine i i imagine that you know it couldn't get worse could it so so it could only it will only get better I, and and uh you know what this one home is doing in woodbridge i think is um they have you know 18 people have tested positive they're getting them out of the place so there's no more spread and, uh, uh, well, actually, you know, they they have eighty five in total. They've moved, they've moved eighteen, and seventeen have died after oh, testing positive. Okay. So the the outbreak has been there in Woodbridge at uh, Vista Care since May seventh. Oh, I see. Okay. So um, you know, it couldn't get worse, could it? I mean, judging by the military report, the, the conditions in these homes could not get worse. So Deplorable, any, yeah. any, anything will be an improvement. Right. Uh, David, you know, final I, thoughts, and then I'll get to you, Marissa, for our last comment. Well, I think my, the thing for me right now, and especially in the weeks ahead, is how are we going to springboard from the, vis- the high visibility of the seriousness of this problem into action to fix it both short-term and long-term, and I think it's a topic we should be following well into the future. I don't think it, it'll go away when COVID goes away. But it's revealed something that needs fixing desperately in the short term, but perhaps even more seriously in the long term when this tidal wave of uh, demand is going to hit us. Marissa. I think, I think it's, what's important to remember is that everything that we're seeing right now the province do with military going in, uh, you know, some province taking over long, some long-term care facilities. These are temporary solutions. They're not permanent solutions. And so, obviously, we're all aware that the premier 
has called for a commission to look into sort of the systemic vulnerabilities in long-term care. What's critical is that we know so many of them now. This commission does not preclude the government from acting now. Um, And there are some serious changes that are needed in long-term care in order to make it a place that is safe for older adults. Um, And so, as I said, you know, these things, they're temporary, but they're not long-term solutions. And we really, we need to take a step back and look at the, the, the aging of the population and what are all of the various components that need to go in to make sure that we're meeting the needs of a population that is aging. Because longevity, I mean, it's one of the greatest achievements of the last century. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to be thrilled about that. Uh, but we also need to make sure we're prepared for it. We'll leave it there. Zoomer Squad, thank you as always. Thank you. Thanks, James. James. We'll talk to you next Monday. Marissa Lennox, David Kravitz, and Peter Mugridge. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.